We're in Romans chapter 12. We'll start at verse 17, but in a quick review, Paul teaches us that we Christians are part of one body, the body of Christ, and each one is given a measure of faith and grace for various services and ministries. He's talking about more the mature Christian. He's not basically talking about a babe or a beginner. He's talking about ministries. Ministries are only for mature Christians. They're often called the ones we just went over. There are seven of them, and they're often called motivation gifts. They motivate people. They're, to, um, they're inspired by God. And they name them prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, which is basically what we would call preaching because it stirs people up. It reminds them of things. Then giving as a ministry, as we said, all Christians do some of these things. All Christians give, but some have a ministry. Then there's the ministry of leading or administrations, and there's one of mercy. These are people who are gifted more to tolerate more and show more mercy than the average Christian can. It's a gift. And they can sort of endure more because they're gifted for it. We marvel at their ability to put up with certain things that the average person couldn't put up with. So they're all gifts by God, ministries. And when the Bible speaks of these ministries and the the nine supernaturals and the fivefold ministry, he's not talking about worldly talents. People think a doctor has the gift of healing, and a person who knows several languages has the gift of tongues. This is foolishness. They're all natural talents, and all uh, whatever the Christian has, even natural, is to be used for the Lord's service. But these are helped by God's grace and faith, so they're a gifting. He does not do these on his own. The highest gift we see in the motivation gifts, we see in the nine supernatural gifts and the fivefold ministers, that basically the highest or the greater was prophecy. It was to speak forth the word of God for the moment under the anointing or inspiration. So apostles, which laid foundations and they traveled, they were prophets and they spoke the word and established foundation. Some prophets' ministries did not travel. They were more local, and they didn't establish churches in time. So we see they had various types of ministries. But an apostle basically has all fivefold ministries, the ministry of the word. He's a prophet, an evangelist. He's a shepherd and a teacher. Paul stayed in some places two or three years to mature the people who got saved and laid the foundations. And then he moved on later after they were established pretty well. Prophecy, as the scripture tells us, is the desire of spiritual gifts, but rather that you prophesy. So basically he was putting the emphasis on speaking for God, and that's basically what a prophet was. He spoke for the Lord. But it didn't mean a thus say of the Lord. People always think that's what it is. That's a rarity. He was a teacher, 
and he inspired and exhorted and warned. He sought for inspiration to do this. A person cannot be saved without conviction, and conviction is a part of prophecy. So the evangelist uses it. The spirit moves and disturbs the person's conscience and gives them the ability. He lifts the veil that they can temporarily see that they need a savior, that they're wicked, that they're a sinner. And they either respond to it, and most do not, and then the veil comes back down. He does not continually do this. This is a gift because he's under the power of the devil. He is blinded. The scripture says the God of this world hath blinded them. So only the Lord in his grace can lift this to let them see something. But they have to respond by confession and repentance and turning to the Lord. Nowhere in the scriptures that say God believes or repents for anybody. They have to do it. But the Spirit inspires and instigates. As Hebrews says, Jesus is the author and finisher. He begins the work and he finishes it. But like bearing fruit, he doesn't bear fruit. We bear fruit. We are joined to the Lord divine, and the life and the power comes from him. And then we produce fruit. He does not produce fruit without us. We cannot produce fruit without him. So the Bible says, he that has joined himself to the Lord is one spirit. So he's talking about the yoking, the relationship. So as we read the scripture, you know, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he relying on the spirit of Christ and his help. And on the other hand, Jesus said, and without me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce good fruit. This is an evil tree produces evil fruit, and a good tree produces good. Well, the good tree basically has to rely on the Lord's grace to help him. He's not capable in himself in producing spiritual things. Even Christians that are misguided and do wrong things then it's wood, hay, and stubble. They may mean well, but it has no spiritual value. So a lot of people are doing things the Lord's not in, so it's wood, hay, and stubble. They've decided how to minister. They've decided what they want to do, and they and they think the Lord will accept that. The Lord does not accept what he does not inspire. See, he knows it has to come through him. There can be no spirituality without his spirit. And he is the head of the church. Christ is that spirit. Him and the Holy Spirit and the Father, the oneness of the Godhead. We have to have them in everything we do. Getting saved, staying saved to the end depends on continuing in him and him giving us power and life to bear fruit, the fruit of Christ's life and the fruit of ministries. So these are ministries here that are graced and inspired. He gives faith and grace for this. The grace of God is to extend himself. People always say it's unmerited favor. I get tired of hearing it because if you read the scripture, it's not just unmerited favor. Everything God does, nobody earns, but if they're in the Lord, they do. And he rewards righteousness. He rewards obedience. He seeks to do that. 
So in that context, because of Christ, the Lord will not owe anyone, but he'll reward every cup of cold water. Any, the least thing we do in Christ's name or spirit, he's keeping accounts. And people sometimes say, well, I don't want to. Well, you insult God because it's his nature to reward good and punish evildoers. He's going to do this. That's who he is. So he's telling us, as Paul said, flee from the wrath to come. The person is not in the Lord. God's saving up everything they did and remembering everything, and he will take vengeance and holiness against it. His holiness will come out, and he is a consuming fire. He is the lake of fire to the wicked. He is everywhere. He'll not be. But they are in deep darkness, which means he's as far away from them as possible. There's no relationship. It's just contempt, wrath, and anger for those who are consigned to the lake of fire and the reverse to those who are in heaven. said he will show kindness to us forever. He'll be good. It's his nature to deal with these things. And that's how he's going to do it. So each one is given a a measure, and it can be increased. It can be taken away. Other ministries can come in effect. We didn't see Paul acting as an apostle for several years, but he preached. He evangelized, but he was considered a teacher mainly, but it was years later. So God can call a person, but they're not acting in that office until they're trained. He doesn't just grab somebody and they're automatically that. He prepares them. Many people want bigger ministry and they're not faithful to the ministries they have. They're not going to get anything from the Lord. See, because he that is faithful in much uh, will be given more. He does not. It says even what he has will be taken from him. So if people are not faithful to their stewardships, it can be taken from them. They can be punished for it. That's what Paul emphasizes. We are the children of God, but we are slaves and servants. When it comes to ministry, people can't use the excuse, I'm a child of God, as if that's going to give them an escape, because it's not going to. He demands service and production and what he does, and he gives the ability. So really, there's no excuse for people not to do something. See, some people, if they don't have a a good gift, they minimize it. And that's the person with the one talent. And not only did he bury it and not use it for his king, he blamed the king of being too hard. I mean, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? He insulted him. And the Lord said, you should have given this talent to the bankers. He was saying, like, if you were given money, rather than sit there and bury it, if you don't want to do anything with it, give it to the bankers and they'll make interest for you. Give it to other ministries and they'll do things. And that was permissible. But he said, but you're a wicked servant. And he was cast into outer darkness for not being faithful to the one thing he was given. So stewardship is where we owe duty to the Lord and he's going to call it into account. And there's going to be a lot of wood, hay, and stubble for people who think they're getting gold and silver. And that's why the Lord said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What is highly esteemed among men is detestable to the Lord. So people who are famous and this one and that, they, oh, he's so, they might not even make it to heaven. 
See, God looks at motives and intents. And the person on the right and left hand of Christ may be someone we never hear of. They were faithful to what God gave them to do. And not to minimize, but Stephen was the first outside of James, a martyr in the church. And he was basically a deacon, but he preached the gospel with the seven. But he didn't live that long. And he, he was stoned to death. They took him out and stoned him. And we said, well, that was great. He gets a martyr's crown. But the person who gets a greater martyr's crown is one who lives 50 and 60 years and stays faithful to the Lord and endures a lot. God considers all of this. So in the early church, when Christians were being persecuted sometime, some of them almost gave up their life. They didn't mind. They wanted to be put to death. They wanted to go be with the Lord. See, they were trying to escape this world, and many of them were in slavery and had bad lives, so they'd rather be with the Lord. So they wanted to sort of hasten it along, and God did not attend that. We have a desire to depart, but not only we are supposed to finish our course, and the Lord sets that course. So there'll be people who lived for the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years, and their reward may be greater than Stephen's. See, he'll measure all of this out, motive, intent, what people did with what they were given. He doesn't miss anything. And so that's why the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We don't hear, basically, of six or seven of the apostles. We never hear of them. But they could be just as great as Peter and John. But they weren't useful for what the Lord wanted. They went off into other lands and laid the foundation. People believe Thomas went to India and Philip went to Ethiopia. It didn't mean they weren't usable. It means that God has his own purposes. They may be greater than reward that John and Peter got. Peter was not the Pope and he was not the foundation. He was part of it. And so again, is this measuring people by looks and by personality, it's all foolish, vain, and it's unspiritual. It shows you that people are unspiritual. Okay, now going to verse 17, we're continuing on. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Okay, notice the two words, never and everyone. So what is he telling us? We're not to set ourselves up to be an avenger. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. In society and those around us, treat people properly and live and serve as if you're the Lord and you should not be a troublemaker. You should not be drawing attention to yourself. Remember Paul said that most of the Christians, even though they're unknown by the world, they're known by God. So he's the one that's going to judge all of these things. No one else really is worthy to do that. Now, the Christian authorities can judge those in the church for misbehavior or for doing things. They're told to do it. Paul rebuked the Corinthians for not doing it. But he said, those outside the body of Christ, we don't judge them. God will judge them at a proper time. They're under the world. They're not his. And he's keeping accounts. But he said, we're more concerned with Christians doing wrong things, because back then, even though it's not done today, because most denominations and churches are run by the world, they'll throw the true Christian out rather than the, the sinning one or the person that claims to be a Christian. 
Now they open the doors to all of them. They don't change their lives. They just say, well, let's just love everybody. Well, God doesn't feel that way. He hasn't changed. He said, I am the Lord that changes not. And he demands holiness among the gathering. And so it don't poison others. And if they would not repent quickly and deal with these things, the authorities would throw the person out, excommunicate them. They weren't told to beat them. They weren't told to put them to death. That's not the church's place. The greatest thing they could do was separate and break fellowship because the Lord himself is doing this. And he's saying, how can you have fellowship with darkness when you're light? That person that continues and will not repent, he's in darkness. Paul called him a wicked person. Nowhere were Christians called a wicked person, but it was his lifestyle and he refused for a while to do anything about it. He eventually did repent and was restored to the church. So we never, under any circumstances, saying we don't meet evil with evil. If you do, then you're evil. You've come down to their level. So it's like someone said, it's human to repay good for good and evil for evil. That's true. Even Jesus said, when you give, he was talking about giving the people They'll give back, pressed down and overflowing. It's the people that do this. When you are kind to people in general, they like to pay that back. They don't like for people, they don't like to be obligated. That's the human nature. So if you start being too good, they want to do something for you. It's just the human nature to do that. It's demonic to repay evil for good. We have to remember that. Some people I've known, they, they borrow money knowing they're not going to pay it back. So they're a thief. They get in debt over frivolous things because they're covetous, and they know they can't pay it back. They're robbers, and they're evil, and that's how God is going to take care of them. Okay. Some people think because they don't have something, they have the right to get it any way they can. Well, if you stole under the law, you had to, didn't matter what you had, you had to pay back four times. Well, if you stole because you didn't have what you needed, then you became their servant until it was paid back. Four times he required. And so he demanded righteous living. And because someone's rich and you're poor, that doesn't give you the right to be a Robin Hood. It means you're discontent. It means you're caught up in the world just like many of the rich. You're just poor and ain't got the money, but you think the same way as the rich people do. And you would act the same way. That's what he's talking about. So again, it's demonic to repay evil for good. But it's godly to repay good for evil. We at times, we bear patiently with them. We as a Christian suffer more because we're doing it for Christ. And therefore, if we're his servants or children, we're not their judge. That's God's place. So he gives us grace. He tests us. He allows things to happen. But how much do we trust the Lord? That's what it proves. Someone said we generally turn the other cheek basically means in general, people do us evil. We don't fight back. We're not talking about people in the church. We're talking about the world. And he said, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And it had places to punish him if they didn't act right. So he was talking about those going about ministering and living the gospel, they go come under the world's persecution 
and they have to bear certain things in Christ's name for him. They're his. The scripture says they're not their own. So we have the Christian, we have Christ to help us so we don't become mere human or devilish in our actions, which in the world is normal, okay? So we have to deal with Christians and worldly people and sometimes in a different way. But we do not have to take abuse and wrongs from a Christian without reproving him. See, a lot of people don't want to correct. The Bible said to do it. As we talked about before, it says if an elder, a leader falls into sin, you haul him before the church and then you embarrass him. It says you rebuke him before everybody. See, he's doubly honored, so he has double consequences. Didn't say to do that to a babe or a beginner. It's sufficient that the leaders talk to him and deal with him. But more is expected, and God expects more. If you're going to give them double honor, there must be a reason, okay? So if they're teaching, it's mainly talk about teaching elders or teaching, they're supposed to be living what they teach. So if they break a great commandment and do a gross sin, it's sort of insulting God and being a lousy witness or ambassador. And the church was supposed to deal with them. But in general, Christians should let the small things pass with each other, the minor affections. James says in many things we offend all. Well, a lot of times we didn't know we're doing it, but we do think. And so we let people go. We don't hold it against them. Now, if it's a clear-cut sin and continuance, we're to rebuke them and deal with them. Actually, when you try to make things right with some Christians that implied, they didn't want to have nothing to do with it. And so you were told to take another Christian and try to make it right, whatever you've done or they've done. And if they refuse to hear it, the church is supposed to throw them out and have nothing to do with them. See, because they're wicked. Jesus said, if, if you hate your brother, he's talking about the Christian church. He says, you're a murderer, and you know you don't have no eternal life in you. So the Christians require it. But he doesn't have to just be quiet with the other Christians. Now, everybody claims to be a Christian, but we're talking about real Christian. But he has to forgive a real Christian, but he doesn't have to until the person repents. Then he leaves it to God. It's God's business. He can't forgive what God does not forgive. So he's talking about holding grudges, being malicious and vengeful like the worldly people are. So we let the small things pass. And if you can't, usually it means you're self-centered and proud and think you're more special. We shouldn't be taking offense at a lot of small things. They should be overlooked. And as he said, for Christ's sake, as Christ did, we forgive and let things go and don't make a big deal of them. But a lot of people love themselves too much and they haven't gone to the cross and they need to be dealt with severely by the Lord after so many months or years. God doesn't have baby Christians for 10 and 20 years. They are false Christians or they they didn't get it. They didn't obey. But there are no retarded spiritual children of the Lord. So we need to remember that. That kind of patience is not taught in Scripture. Paul are rebuking heretics and people that are causing divisions and things in the body. He said, after two or three warnings, you throw them out and you have nothing to do with them. Well, they don't talk so much about forgiving them no matter what they do. They didn't do it. 
And that's what it meant when Jesus said, whosoever sends you loose, they'll be loosed. And whosoever sends you retained, they'll be retained. So we have to learn the church, the body of Christ, not the denominational church, because today we're in darkness and there's very few lampstands. There's mainly candles, but it's getting darker and darker uh, before the Antichrist comes. It is getting and it's going to be like the days of Noah and Lot. Well, what were the days of Lord Lot? There were no Christians but one or two. Noah, his family got in because of him. They said he found favor. Well, they, his children, adults, were smart enough to obey him and help him build the ark, and they stayed with his authority. So they got in. Lot, his two daughters and wife would have got out, and anybody else that wanted to join them, the sons-in-laws that were going to get married, they were engaged. Do you have anybody else here, the angel said. So if anybody was hearing this and wanted to change and go, he could have gone with them. I mean, who went? Uh, the only reason his daughters went, they upheld uh, the respect and authority of their father. But the mother did not, and so she was lost. She turned back and disobeyed, and God struck her dead. See, because her heart and her life, she wanted to marry her daughters off and have a big party, and she wanted to be like the world. And it said Sodom and Moore was very perverse and very wicked. And God had determined to destroy it. Well, she evidently didn't mind that part of the city. She wanted something else. Well, her heart was there, and so God judged her. She had obeyed. She could have had her heart there all she wanted, and she could have made it out, even with a wicked heart, if she didn't disobey that angel when he said, don't look behind you. Well, she did what she wanted, and she reaped the consequences. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're seeing... We give place to God to handle the wicked. We, in general, do not judge those in the world. Paul said, what do we have to do with those? God judges them. He meant it's the ones in the body of Christ we discipline and chasten and make sure they are living right. People today say, well, that's God. That's not a, yes, it is. And if you don't do it, you're a false minister and teacher. Because you're, as a mature Christian, you're required to do it. If your brother is greatly sinning, it's your duty to tell him and at times rebuke him and warn him. And if he don't listen, you don't have enough to do with him. See, that's how God looks at it. He don't want the unholy affecting the holiness of the gatherings, okay, where Christ is in the midst. And again, with the Christian that has to bear many of these things, God gives grace and he's not finished perfecting us and testing us. And so we have to put up with what normally we wouldn't put up with. But for Christ's sake, we have to bear it. And he gives us grace to do it. I heard one person say, the Lord said, when they slap you on the cheek, you turn the other. Again, he's talking about mainly giving the gospel and teaching. And we are offended that way. Someone don't like it. Someone said, well, I, I obeyed that the first time. He said, but the second time I hit him on a shovel. Well, that just means you're splitting hairs. You're not fulfilling what the Lord said. And so it means you can't suffer for the Lord because you're too proud and you think too much of yourself. Uh, that's what it means. 
So he's saying you better get grace if you're going to stay with the Lord because it's going to happen. And mainly in the early church, people didn't readily call themselves Christians because it was the despised state. In Paul's time, probably 20, 25% of Christians were slaves. It was not a glorified state. It was a contemptible state. So if you profess the Lord, you immediately knew you were going to be held in contempt by the world. And that's why John, when he looked down through the ages, and there's a scripture that says he marveled. And the reason he marveled was everybody was claiming to be Christians, and they weren't, and they would use the name of Christ, and they were wicked. See, that didn't happen at his time. It started off the individuals, but they didn't put up with this. So he probably marveled, oh my. By the time the Lord comes, he said, a third of the world claimed to be Christian, and they're just as wicked as any other religion because they didn't name the name of Christ at his time unless they meant to suffer and bear the reproach. And so that that separated the good from the bad, didn't it? So live right and honest with your means and with whatever God gives you, graces you with, okay? Respect what is right in the sight of all men uh, because you don't have certain things. You don't rob people. You don't manipulate If you deal with covetousness, you won't have a problem at all. Most professing Christians are covetous. Materialistic prosperity and faith is nothing but covetousness. We'll see what the Lord thinks about this and the apostles. And we'll see that most of us who live here, we have a lot more than they had. And we're still seeking things that are greed, covetousness. We're not satisfied. Well, discontent shows you're not right with the Lord, yet you're earthly minded. That's what it shows. Okay. And an individual has to deal with that himself because we're allowed moderation. We're allowed things and we can't put a trip on someone else. They may know how to handle things and we may not be able to, so we can't do have certain things. So we leave those kind of minor judgments to the Lord. It's the gross sins and the obvious that the church is supposed to deal with directly, okay? So respect what is right in the sight of men. Uh, In society, he wants us to realize that the world, that we're different, even if they hate us. Jesus said, they'll hate you. They don't like do-gooders. Well, that's tough. I've heard many people say, yeah, I don't want to be too religious or do-good. I said, well, you're going to hell. And their mouth opens. That's because that's the only people going to heaven. Paul said, be careful to maintain good works. James said, without those, uh, he said, your faith is dead. So they didn't mind calling a spade a spade. And so we see we live honest. We'll get to it later. But we are content with our present lot. Most people are not content. Many Christians are not. And therefore, they have to be chastened and punished by the Lord. Okay. Contentment means satisfaction, able to live and not have extreme coveting or lust or greed for things. That was one of the Ten Commandments. You should not covet, especially anything that belongs to somebody else. And so that's a form of stealing, whether people know it or not. So be content with your present lot. Live within your means. Not be borrowing things just to have an abundance, not to get a lot of credit and then go into debt 
when there's things you can do without, you just don't want to. That's lust. That's greed. That's worldly mindedness. Okay. So you don't borrow, and a lot of people get in debt knowing they're not going to be able to pay it back. That's covetousness. They won't make it into the kingdom. Okay. Covetous person, Paul said, is an idolater, and you know, no idolater has eternal life. So he makes it very plain, doesn't he, what he thinks about this. So if you people that live on credit, monies you do not have or know you cannot pay back when your paychecks come and your job will be able to do that, that's living within your means and moderation. It's materialism, okay? It means you're not content with your present lot, okay? Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Everything. That means your present lot. You give thanks. You don't grumble and complain. There's one thing to request. See, a lot of people claim to be Christians are asking the Lord for things that's nothing but covetousness, and he has no intentions of answering. He doesn't hear the prayer, selfish prayers. They're looking for things and things to make them like the world so they can keep up with the Joneses. Well, the Lord ain't into that. So 95% of people who think they're Christian, 95% of their prayers is vain. God doesn't care, okay? Because you're too much of the world. So in everything, your present life, and Paul said, I've learned how to be a base and abundant. So Proverbs says, God has set prosperity against adversity that we'll learn how to live. So there's ups and downs about, but they should not regulate the spirituality of a person. Some people don't feel blessed that God loves them unless they've got stuff. And then when they lose their job, then they start wondering why God doesn't love them anymore. It has nothing to do with that. He gives grace, and he wants us tested in many areas, and we have to prove it. And we have to live within our means, and he doesn't allow us to do certain things that other people seem like they can do it. Well, they're going to answer to the Lord if they're wrong. We ain't going to be able to say, so-and-so does it. The Lord at judgment say, they may say, well, so-and-so's in hell. You want to go there with them? So you do what my word says, okay? Godliness with contentment is the great gain. You don't hear the prosperity people talking much about this scripture, do you? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But with godliness, with contentment, is the great gain. So people who want to prosper and get ahead, he's talking about in this world. What, what is the apostle's wisdom? Be content. He said, that's the great gain, not getting objects and materialism and, and things like that. See, again, moderation is fine. But going beyond that, that's what the word transgression means. You go beyond. You're not content no more. You're tied up in the world. Paul told us, he said, set your mind on things above, not on the earth. So, and the Father, it says he knows we have need of certain things. And we'll find out later what they are. And that doesn't impress a lot of people. Now, verse 8 disturbs many, and it should. Now, look at verse 8. Never have I heard a prosperity teacher preach this. And having food and clothing, 
With these, we shall be content. Mm. Well, we could say today in our society, even the street people who are fed and clothed, God's assessment is to Christians, maybe you should live like that. Maybe you can handle that. And they start backing up. So he's saying they're not spiritual. You'd be content with your lot. And if you're godly, the Lord regulates and does things as he sees fit. And things come and things go. Things change. But the Lord changes not. So he's saying then food and clothing was the basic. I have people, they're praying for a car, they're praying for the home. I hear people tell me all the time when I counsel, well, the Lord wants to be happy. That's, that's worldly happiness. That's finding your own life. And Jesus says you'll end up in hell. See, happiness, they think, depends on what they have. It makes them happy. Joy goes into sorrow. You can have joy with sorrow, conflict, tribulation. You basically can't be humanly happy if things aren't going your way. So it's a self-centered life, okay? And then he strikes us later. We'll deal with it in a minute. Thus we have a few who have really attained it. We'll go to verse 9 through 11. For those who desire to be rich, that simply means abundance, having a lot more than you need, fall into temptations and a snare and into Foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. It sends people to hell in the lake of fire. See, they get caught up in covetousness and greed. Who? Those who aren't satisfied with the basics, food and clothing. So again, if we have the means to get things, fine. Moderation. And he'll deal with those kind of people too, who happen to have more and what they're supposed to do. But he's warning them. Their spiritual state comes first. And if you're not content and godly and you're not accepting your lot, then you need to evaluate what the Lord requires of you or what he is requiring of you. Let's take a break.